Good evening. Police on the streets, this time to make it safer to cross. And a new rule for cars and bikes, you better stop for pedestrians. President Biden plans a reset and gives Putin an out in Ukraine. And who is behind the move to end COVID restrictions? The usual dark money suspects. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, January 19th, 2021. President Joe Biden acknowledged today that the pandemic has left Americans exhausted and demoralized, but insisted at a news conference marking his first year in office that he has outperformed expectations. The president says he plans to stay on track. One thing I haven't been able to do so far is get my Republican friends to get in the game of making things better in this country. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. And so the problem here is that I think what's happens, what I have to do in the, in the change in, in tactic, if you will, I have to make clear to the American people what we are for. We've passed a lot. We passed a lot of things that people don't even understand what's all that's in it, understandably. They don't know a lot of the detail of what we pass. So the difference is I'm going to be out on the road a lot making the case around the country with my colleagues who are up for re-election and others making the case of what we did do and what we want to do, what we need to do. And so I don't think I've overpromised at all, and I'm going to stay on this track. And as the president earlier today, the president reeled off early successes on coronavirus relief and a bipartisan infrastructure deal. But his other agendas have all been thwarted in a Democrat-controlled Senate. Inflation has emerged in the past year as an economic threat to the nation and a political risk for the president. Biden laid out a three-point plan to ease the burden of inflation on Americans. COVID-19 has created a lot of economic complications including rapid price increases across the world economy. People see it at the gas pumps, the grocery stores, and elsewhere. So here's what we're going to do. A critical job in making sure that the elevated prices don't become entrenched rests with the Federal Reserve, which has a dual mandate, full employment and stable prices. The Federal Reserve provided extraordinary support during the crisis for the previous year and a half. Given the strength of our economy and the pace of recent price increases, it's appropriate, as the federal chairman, Chairman Powell, the Fed Chairman Powell has indicated, to recalibrate the support that is now necessary. I respect the Fed's, the Fed's independence, and I've nominated five superb individuals to serve on the Federal Board of Governors, men and women, from a variety of ideological perspectives. They're eminently qualified, historically diverse, and have earned bipartisan praise. And I call the United States Senate to confirm them without any further delay. And here at the White House, and for my friends in Congress, the best thing to tackle high prices is a more productive economy with greater capacity to deliver goods and services to the American people. And a growing economy where folks have more choices and more small businesses compete and where more goods can get to market faster and cheaper. I've laid out a three-part plan to do just that.
Biden also addressed foreign policy issues, especially the rising tensions with Russia over Ukraine. The president says he believes Vladimir Putin doesn't want full-blown war in Ukraine, and he would pay a dear price if he moves forward with a military incursion. We have a number of treaties internationally and in Europe that suggest that you get to choose who you want to be with. But the likelihood that Ukraine is going to join NATO in the near term is not very likely based on much more work they have to do in terms of democracy and a few other things going on there. And whether or not major allies in the West would vote to bring Ukraine in right now. So there's room to work if he wants to do that. But I think, as usual, he's going to... Well, I probably shouldn't go any further, but I think it will hurt him badly. Sounds like you were um, offering some way out here, some off-ramp. And it sounds like what it is, is at least an informal assurance that NATO is not going to uh, take in Ukraine any time in the next few decades. And it sounds like you're saying we would never put nuclear weapons there. He also wants us to move all of our nuclear weapons out of Europe and not have troops rotating through the old Soviet bloc. Do you think there's space for that there? No. No, there's not space for that. We won't permanently station, but the idea we're not going to, we're going to actually increase troop presence in Poland and Romania, et cetera, if in fact he moves. Because we have a sacred obligation in Article 5 to defend those countries. They are part of NATO. We don't have that obligation relative to Ukraine, although we have great concern about what happens in Ukraine. Meanwhile, a top Russian diplomat said Moscow would not back down from its insistence that the United States formally ban Ukraine from ever joining NATO and reduce the alliance's military presence in Eastern Europe. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybakov said Moscow had no intention of invading Ukraine, but that its demand for security guarantees were non-negotiable. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson defied calls to resign in a feisty performance today in Parliament, but it may be too little to prevent a push by his Conservative Party's lawmakers to oust him over a series of lockdown flouting government parties. One Conservative lawmaker defected to the opposition Labour Party and a former Conservative cabinet minister told him, in the name of God, Go. The demand from former Brexit Security uh, Secretary David Davis came during a combative prime minister's question session in the House of Commons, where Johnson defended his government's record. Many on these benches, I spent weeks and months defending the prime minister uh, against often angry constituents. I reminded them of his success in delivering Brexit and on the vaccine and many other things. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Prime Minister, I, I, I must say to the right honourable gentleman, I don't know what he's talking about, uh, but uh, what, I can, what I can tell him, uh, I don't know what quotation he's alluding to that he re- he's referring but what I can tell him is that I, and I think I've told this House repeatedly uh, throughout, this, throughout this pandemic, I take full responsibility for everything done in this government uh, and, and uh, throughout the pandemic. Stephen Kinnock. And that is Prime Minister Boris Johnson responding to 
a former Tory leader, David Davis, the allegations that Johnson and his staff broke restrictions the government had imposed on the country have helped the Labor Party open up a double-digit opinion poll lead on the conservatives. But Johnson doesn't have to face voters until the next general election, scheduled for 2024. And the political rhetoric was just as biting in the United States Senate today as senators faced off in emotional raw debate on voting legislation the Democrat Democratic and uh, Democrats and civil rights leaders say is vital for protecting democracy, but that almost certainly will be defeated without a filibuster rules change. Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat, who along with Arizona Democrat Kristen Sinema have refused to join other Democrats to toss a filibuster, reiterated his opposition to allowing a simple majority to decide the issue. I don't know how you break a rule to make a rule and thinking you're doing something is going to. We've never done this. We have never done. I've looked. I've been looking for every precedent I can, every car about. The bottom line is everything that we've done. I've been. They've told me about. Uh, well, the the, uh, the debt ceiling. That was done by the rules. That was done by the rules. Okay, and that was uh, uh, done with uh, Majority Leader Schumer and and Minority Leader uh, McConnell coming to an agreement. That's what it's all about. So we've done everything along the lines of with the rules. And I don't know why we can't come together and find a pathway forward. But breaking the rules, there's no checks and balances in this process only for the only thing we have is a filibuster. And they think if you have a situation we have right now where you have the executive branch of government and you have Congress, the House and the Senate, they're all the same. And there's no check and balance because basically you just sweep right through and the same thing could happen if Republicans had everything. And I just the only thing I've ever said was this. The majority of my of my colleagues in the caucus, Democrat caucus, they've changed. They've changed their mind. I respect that. You have a right to change your mind. I haven't. I hope they respect that, too. Meanwhile, in the Senate chamber, in piercing speeches, the debate is carrying echoes of an earlier era when the Senate filibuster was deployed, deployed by opponents of civil rights legislation. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer contended the fight is not over, and he ridiculed Republican claims that the new election laws in the states will not end up hurting voter access and turnout. Schumer said, we're going to keep fighting long after today. And across the sea in West Africa, Cameroonian authorities say Anglophone separatists have been trying to disrupt the continent's top soccer tournament, the Africa Football Cup of Nations, which Cameroon is hosting. The military says rebels have launched small-scale attacks in the towns of Buea and Limbe, which are holding matches. Authorities have also blamed the separatists for the killing of a Cameroonian lawmaker earlier this week. The on-and-off-again fight between French and English-speaking parts of the West African nation has been going on for at least the past five years. An NYU student activist, Frank Morales Jr., is based in Germany, but he was in the United States to visit family and drum up support for peace activists he works with in Cameroon. Cameroon, after the First World War, it had been a German colony, and then part of it under the control of Britain, and another part of it under the control of France. In the 1960s, upon independence in the two regions, they came together through a rather controversial UN-administered vote within which the two regions were incorporated into a single country at the time of federation and at this point really just a single country under the authority and control of a francophone region. 
people do speak of a continuing French neocolonialism in the country, which has come at the expense of the Anglophone English-speaking region, which had certain English legal customs. English was the primary language in the school, the primary language of the local courts. Over the past five years, especially, this tension and this inequality has boiled over. There were a series of protests, primarily led by teachers in the Anglophone region a few years back and lawyers against the continuing unequal power relations between the Francophone and Anglophone regions, which have since broken out into violence and conflict, initiated at first by the government, but also there's been a fair amount of violence amongst Anglophone separatists, which has more or less constituted something like a civil war, which has continued more or less unabated. There have been periods of peace, but nevertheless, the situation has been one of continuing poverty, displacement, school closures, dispossession, violence, burning down of villages. What are you calling for? In coordination with a Cameroonian activist friend of mine who's been living in Berlin for some time, where I am now based, we're calling for basically the procurement, where possible, of whatever excess still-functioning laptops, old phones that people have, just for the immediate practical concern of helping with peace and coordination work on the ground amongst activists, amongst journalists, who have lost their technology. These journalists used to have their own computers. They used to have cameras that they could use to document the crimes of all perpetrators. But this stuff has been largely destroyed. At this point, the call that my Cameroonian activist friend Evers has made and has asked me while I am stateside to uh, spread the call. If anyone has old laptops lying around, they maybe still have a charger with or that has some decent battery life and can be functional enough to just enable communication amongst people, which can simply help with practical matters of letting people know where their loved ones are, letting people know where violence is taking place, letting people know where something should be documented and brought to life, because a lot of this stuff is suppressed on the ground there. And it's very hard for members of the Cameroonian diaspora and other activists outside of the conflict zone to often know what is even taking place there. Ideally, they could actually just email me. So my email is FMM, as in Frank Mello Morales, FMM. 306 at nyu.edu. NYU as in New York University. Frank Morales Jr. is the son of well-known homeless and housing activist Frank Morales Sr. Cameroon's government and the military this week said attacks have increased in English-speaking Western regions since the tournament started, but that English-speaking towns hosting it are safe. The government says troops will protect all civilians and calls on people to cooperate with the military by reporting suspects and strangers in their towns and villages. So the uh, battle, and it was interesting, the uh, distinction between the Anglophone, which is English-speaking, and Francophone, French-speaking parts of that country, an inheritance of colonialism. An investigative report is shedding light on a nearly two-year campaign by right-wing and big business interests to force a return to normalcy to boost corporate profits in a pandemic that is now surging once again thanks to Omicron. The report, titled How the COPE Network Hijacked the War on COVID, tells the story of how that corporate bankrolled campaign originally started and how it has continued to supplant public health experts and hijack the government's response to the academic, to the pandemic. The authors of the report, Walker Bragman and Alex Koch, point out that when COVID began, it spread across the United States in early March 2020. States responded by locking down to varying extents 
All 24 Democratic governors and 19 of the 26 Republican governors issued weeks-long stay-at-home orders and restrictions on non-essential businesses. Lockdown measures drove down cases in the U.S. and likely saved millions of lives globally. But with the Omicron outbreak, that just hasn't happened. Walker Bragman had this to say. Big business interests are behind that. Specifically, Charles Koch's network has been messaging war against public health measures for years now, since March 2020. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is also in favor of laissez-faire pandemic approach. But really, the network of nonprofits that we identified in our story are tied to Charles Koch. Are they known names or are they somewhat secretive? We do know them, some of them from the Tea Party days, Americans for Prosperity, Freedom Works, which is a dark money group that was organizing Tea Party protests back in 2009. In 2020, the group was helping to promote anti-lockdown rallies, recruiting people for those rallies. We really see the same players over and over again. There's Donors Trust as well, which is a pass-through organization for right-wing dark money, and that's affiliated with Charles Koch as well, and that's been spreading anti-lockdown messaging, the Foundation for Economic Education, which has been Koch-funded. Are these protesters bought and paid for? Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. I don't want to speculate. I will say that we know that these groups put out a call. We know that they help get everything organized, putting out the word. This is where the protest is going to be. This is what we're doing. What's really shameful about it is that these sort of anti-public health protests benefit capital, really benefit capital. They're being sold to people as freedom, but there's, there's really no freedom in your employer being able to force you back into an unsafe workspace, in your government not providing you enough relief to be able to keep your family safe from infection. It's because labor is treated as expendable. Labor is being told, essentially, get back to work, accept this risk. It's not that bad, or even if it is that bad, it doesn't matter because you have to do it. Another aspect of this is that if the federal government were to be more active in preventing the kind of human destruction that we've seen, it could show people that government actually can work. And that is the scariest thing for capital of all, because the neoliberal dogma that has dominated in Washington and made its way out to so many people across the country and been embraced in our cultural ethos is that government can't function. It's inefficient. When it tries to help, it makes things worse. And that's simply hasn't been the, the American story for all of our history. The New Deal was a wildly successful. We should have seen a New Deal scale pandemic response that allowed people to stay home if they to work remotely or to not have to worry about the things that people worry about day to day, their rent, their ability to provide food for their families. This is a moment where we need a federal government. Great. I'm going to leave it at that. Anything you'd like to add? There's an academic network at play as well. This network of nonprofits has been funding and supporting academic institutions that are willing to spread this message. Most recently, we see at Hillsdale College, which is funded by Charles Koch, they're setting up an academy for science and freedom with some of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration that urged governments to adopt a strategy of reaching herd immunity through mass infection 
and implementing only what they call focused protection for the most vulnerable. They don't really define focused protection. They give some examples of it, like using staff at nursing homes who have natural immunity, but otherwise pretty much letting the virus rip. What it really smacks of is social Darwinism and I think eugenics. They're providing the academic framework and support for what big business wants. And so that's what our story is about. Walker Bragman, he along with Alex Koch are the authors of How the Coke Network Hijacked the War on COVID. You can read it at dailyposter.com, dailyposter.com. The Great Barrington Letter was an anti-lockdown document written by scientists supported by money from various foundations that are uh, financed by the Koch brothers. And closer to home, Mayor Eric Adams unveiled new traffic plans today to improve safety conditions at intersections in an effort to reduce traffic fatalities. Drivers and cyclists will now be required to fully stop at intersections that don't have a stop sign or a traffic signal when a pedestrian is present and remain stopped until the pedestrian has crossed the street. There are 1,200 such intersections in the city. The city's Department of Transportation will roll out an educational campaign this month about the new rule similar to California, right? Adams also announced that police officers will be expected to double enforcement efforts for motorists that fail to yield to cyclists or pedestrians at intersections, as well as begin issuing warnings and eventually summonses for the new traffic rule, calling on patrol officers to enforce road rules alongside traditional traffic police. Adams said at a news conference today, I don't subscribe to the theory that police officers should sit back and watch a traffic infraction take place and say, that's not my job about the gun violence that we are witnessing in our city, but it's also about the traffic crashes. Uh, that is a form of safety. And when we have stood with uh, families for safe streets, transportation alternative, and other advocates, uh, they'll tell you the trauma of losing a loved one uh, by a vehicle crash is traumatic as a person who loses a loved one uh, to gun violence, and it is imperative. So today, join with the commi both commissioners, we are we are announce a major action to make our intersections safe. First, we are going to reimagine 1,000 intersections all over the city. Uh, there will be tra traffic common measures and recapturing space for pedestrians. We're going to improve traffic signals, raise crosswalks, and more. Uh, second, uh, you will see a better coordination and enforcement with the New York City Police Department. We're not going to wait until there's a fatality before we identify where the problem is located and have the proper enforcement when we do so. We're going to double down on enforcement at efforts of failure to yield violations where people are just failing to yield to pedestrians as they cross the streets. And we're going to enforce a new traffic rule. Uh, drivers and cyclists must fully stop at intersections, even if there are not four-way stop signs, whenever there's a pedestrian uh, crossing or at the street corner about to cross. This is a very important initiative, and we want the federal government to reimagine um, when, where we can put stop signs and what we can do better. We're going to be communicating with uh, the federal government because it's imperative to understand the, the rules that were in place, previous generations are no longer applicable to now, where we have busy streets with scooters, skateboarders, 
uh, all sorts of forms of movement on our streets. It's more than just vehicles. Our goal is to be clear. People must learn the rules of the road or get off the road. And that is the message we're sending out. And so we're, we're going to put in place a real campaign. We, we're calling it the campaign to really keep our cities uh, safe in a real way. Stop. Let them cross is going to be the campaign of real focus on allowing people to use our streets in a safe way. And that's Mayor Eric Adams. The Transportation Department will also begin constructing more raised crosswalks with the goal of completing 100 a year and will double the installation of design features in intersections like rubber speed bumps and plastic posts, which are meant to slow the speed of cars making turns. And just a note, in the state of Wisconsin, you might not know, all wheeled vehicles, carts, bicycles, skateboards, whatever, must have a license plate by their Department of Transportation and must be registered with their state. Every wheeled vehicle, you can get a ticket if you even have a cart on the street in the state of Wisconsin. And that's been that way for many, many years. And that's on the news for Wednesday, January 19th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.